Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. This is a weekly show shot live on Sundays on Twitch in which we talk about all things D&D. So uh, each week I put together a list of different things we're going to talk about and we talk about them. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You can help support shows like this by becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up and you get all kinds of free stuff. So let's take a look at what we're going to talk about today. So I mentioned last week that the week before I had a really big week where I was hosted on both the D&D Beyond YouTube channel, YouTube show, and on the Matt Coville's uh, MCDM channel talking about Arcadia 6. All of those are now available on YouTube. So the Arcadia one was on YouTube to begin with. And that was a really fun, fun appearance, fun, fun to chat with Matt Colville for the first time. And but the D&D Beyond one was started on Twitch and has since been split up into two different YouTube videos. The links for these videos will be in the show notes. It will be in the show notes below. So I did one on lazy DMing and I did another one on encounter building. And both of them were a lot of fun. It was really it was really enjoyable. And I think they were they were fun shows to do. I got a lot of feedback from them. I got a lot of people that said, hey, I saw you on that D&D Beyond channel. And that was really cool. So so that one was really neat. I think the Arcadia stream, probably not as much because it's like I think it was and a couple of hours, or it was a couple hours long, I think. And, and I was the third guest, right? So, but these, it was, it was, you know, directly about, about stuff that I was doing. So yeah, this one on encounter building and one about, one about encounter building and one about just lazy dungeon mastering in, in general. And really, really fun, really fun time to do. So I enjoyed that. So you can see those. If you want to watch more Mike Shea, if you're not getting enough Mike Shea, you can take a look at those two YouTube videos. They were, they were lots of fun to do. The embarrassing thing was running the encounter builder, not realizing that the combat tracker and the encounter builder are not the same thing. So I think they wanted to like build an encounter and I never, we never like really got to it, but I think we got some good tips for how to use the encounter builder. So Uh, I, it says you can never have too much Mike Shea. I don't think that is true. My wife would say there is definitely uh, a a certain amount of Mike Shea. That's cool. Grim Accord is great already integrating. Uh, Yeah, that's really cool. I like the, I I liked how the Grim Accord came out and, and I really enjoyed it. So last week I also talked about some uncovered secrets and adventure generators that are available to patrons of Sly Flourish. One of the things you get, two of the things you get are adventure generators and uncovered secrets. These are PDF documents. They have about 20 to 30 pages each of ways to help inspire your game and make it easier for you to run 5e games. And last time, Last time I talked about three, three new pages that I added to it. A, I'll see if I can remember them. God generator, a lost kingdoms generator, and a legendary monster generator. How to, how to, how to build legendary monsters. And I was going to talk about a fourth, which is the villain generator, but I couldn't find it. It was there. I just couldn't find it. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, so this is one of the two documents, 31-page document called Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets. Again, this is available to patrons right away. So if you, if you are interested in getting access to this right now, you can do so by becoming, by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish and get this and the adventure generators. All of these, all of the, a lot of, most of the material that's here is going to be uh, combined into a book that I'm going to be kickstarting in a couple of months called, called Sly Flourish's, called The Lazy DM's Companion the third book of the Lazy DM series, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's workbook, and the Lazy DM's companion. And the Lazy DM's companion is going to contain guidelines and inspiration to make it easier for you to run 5e games. That's what it's intended to do. And it's going to have all these uncovered secrets. I think most of them, right? There's going to be a couple of exclusive ones that only patrons will have access to, but there'll be lots of stuff in here. So villains are one of these things. Villains are on page 14. So we'll go down. Oh, I'll talk about the table of contents. So last week I was showing this off and uh, I had people who said, you know, it's great, but it really needs a table of contents. And the answer is yes, it really does. It didn't when it was five pages long. It does now that it's 30 pages long. So I created a table of contents for it and you can now, it, it is based on the PDF page number. So it's not linked or anything like that, but you can, you can go and see that the villain generator, for example, is on page 14. And go down to page 14. So the tricky bit of the doing its contents is like, <clears throat> I think I mentioned this last time, I did not organize this well. Each page, each guideline is its own Word document, which means there's not a way for me to combine them and link them easily, right? I'm doing all the layout myself in Word and it's kind of a mess. So there aren't page numbers on the pages, for example, <laughs> which kind of sucks, I know. But it is based on the page number of the PDF. So given that they're PDFs, you can generally see what page you're on than the PDF and you can go to it. And the example is the villain generator, which is page 14. So if I go to here 
and I got 14. Bang, there it is, villain generator. See, PDF, PDF, the PDF tool does it. So the villain generator is kind of sits alongside like the NPC generator. I think, no, the NPC generator is in the other guide. And the idea here is like, if you need a front, right? So we talk about like dungeon world fronts. I'm trying to get away from the lingo of front because it's, you have to explain it to anybody, right? So I tie instead like the idea of villains, I will tie to the word fronts in case people are familiar with the idea of, of fronts. And same with like villainous motivations, which are, are kind of like the, the grim portents, right? The villainous quests. So it's interesting. I probably need to edit this one. So, um, so you know, the, the idea is like build build some villains and who are the villains. So the idea is like you, if you don't have an idea for your villain, you can start to roll them up and you can say like, you know, we say described as fronts in the Lazy Dungeon Master. Villains drive the story and the adventure. Choose up to three villains for your campaign, right? And you roll and it might be a hag coven, an arch devil, an uncaring archmage, right? And you can sort of, this can give you an idea. This is, again, if you're right at the beginning of a campaign, you want to build up a villain, you know, you can roll, you can roll this up. Uh, then I have a special section specifically for villainous heralds. I love the idea of heralds so much, right? And this is something that's brand new to like the lazy DM style of your villain has somebody who is their front man. You have a villain has somebody who is out there in front of the characters talking about, you know, talking about how to do this. So we have elven gestures or imp familiar or sadistic bard or toady with hat, right? Or pompous collar. So you have different kinds of villain, villainous heralds that are applied. So your hag coven might have a pompous collar. Your resurrected king might have a loyal villager, right? Who becomes their herald. So really, really great, really great idea. I love using heralds now. It's a real, it's, it's a common thing that I do. Then you have your villainous motivations. My little bit of editing is I think I describe both the motivations as grim portents when the motivation is their goal, right? This is a, this is the goal of the villain. What are they trying to do? Seek bloody vengeance, which is to spread at the cost of everything, you know, wants to get incredibly rich, wishes to devour everyone and everything, right? And so you can kind of use these to th think about, you know, these general ideas to sort of get specific goals that your villain might have. You have your corrupt emperor who wishes to be awake, you know, wishes to awaken, right? There's an emperor. You know, what if it's like a mummy emperor, right? Your demon prince wishes to devour everyone and everything. That's pretty straightforward. Your ageless lich wishes to, above all, to survive and grow. So it could be really neat. And then you have your villainous quests. What are the things that the villain is doing to accomplish these goals? What are they trying to do? And this really gets back into the main quest that the whole guide has, right? And they, the adventure generators in particular can build off of these quests, but recover ancient artifacts, corrupt local lords, awaken a horrible monster, build an army, destroy binding monuments, you know, all kinds of things. So these are just, again, prompts to give you ideas about how to uh, build your villain. The, I, the hope is that you can either read these and get ideas about what we're talking about in general and then come up with your own, or you can actually roll on them and start to let ideas form. So if you're right in the beginning of a campaign, this can kind of help you fire up ideas for your campaign. So lots, all, all of these guidelines are kind of, are, are kind of built around this, uh, around this idea. You know, all of them are built to kind of help us get an idea of how we are, of how we're going to build our adventures in our campaigns. That's the goal of this is, is fire off. So that is the villain generator. And there's like, you know, 30 other generators that are like this. Most of them are inside the adventure generators, not so much in the uncovered secrets, but like, here's your NPC generator. It's funny that the, if you have NPCs, quests, and villains, you should probably go NPCs, villains, and quests. I don't know. But, you know, how do you generate a quick NPC? You know, what are what are situations that you would have in game? So there's lots of different kinds of stuff in this. I, I'm really enjoying these guides. I've been getting a lot of feedback from the people on Patreon and from my Discord, the Patreon Discord channel, to help clean these up. So I think they're really pretty good. I'm pretty proud of them. And I think they're going to be fantastic once they've been through editing and layout and they are sitting in the Lazy DMs Companion. So those are, that is the Villain Generator. Again, available to patrons right now. So if you sign up uh, or you are, if you are already, are, if you are already a patron, you can go to your patron rewards and you can get links to it. You can also get them the pinned, the pinned messages on Discord also has all of them. Then in the Patreon Discord channel also has them. Yeah, I mentioned the table of contents. So here's like the Adventure Generator. That was Uncovered Secrets. That's the wrong one. What about this one? Wow, I linked to the same thing in both places. So that's, that's totally not helpful. But the adventure generator, I should go find it. So here's the adventure generators, right? And the adventure generators also has a nice table of contents with all of the different things it has. It's a little bit shorter than the Uncovered Secrets. 24 pages for adventure generators, but all different kinds of stuff. Look at all the different cool things you get for, for doing generators. Core adventure builders, 
all kinds of stuff. Settlement. I really like this thing. I think it's a, you know, it's taken a year to kind of build out. And I want to thank all the patrons who've been waiting every month that, that, and supporting it every month to help get this out there. So good, good stuff. And now, yeah, now easier to use with a nice table of contents to tell you what is where. You need a cult. You need a god. You want to do a heist. You want to do some underground exploration. You've got, you know, Lost Kingdoms, Generator Lost Kingdom. You've got everything right there. So thanks for the suggestion. I don't remember who suggested it. But thanks for the suggestion on uh, doing a table of contents. It is far more useful. And it wasn't that hard to do. So one of the thoughts I had, I don't remember how, the, I don't remember how this topic came up. The cycle of D&D, the cycle of the popularity of D&D ebbs and flows. Although I think there is a good argument to be made that we are in a different time for D&D than has ever existed before. So the popularity of D&D right now is higher than it has ever been and continuing to get higher than it's ever been. And, you know, but in times past, D&D's popularity has been really high and then really low and then really high and really low. And, and the thing is, like, there haven't been so many cycles that we can draw an accurate trend line. And the world changes so much, given the popularity of, like, streaming games and the popularity of playing games online and the, the tools to be able to play games online. There hasn't been a, there, there's no good way to do a prediction on this, right? But we can, we can probably accurately say that, generally speaking, one of three things can happen. It can continue to grow. It can level off and stay pretty stable or it can drop, right? And then there's varying degrees of each of those. Maybe it grows and continues to grow exponentially or, or grows at a, at, a, at a greater curve, right? Maybe it sort of flattens out and wobbles. Like there's lots of different things, but generally it's like it's going to get higher, it's going to stay the same, or it's going to get lower. And so a question I have, like I have, I have kind of churned the Sly Flourish empire into a, a, a business, right? There's definitely a business aspect to this, although... I, I, I'm lucky enough in my life that I am not dependent upon it. And so far, while the Sly Flourish Empire has done well, that isn't, it hasn't become the goal, right? The goal, my goal, I, I state it, I couldn't state it more clearly than the first line of the Sly Flourish website, right? Helping Dungeon Masters run great D&D games. That's all I want to do. Right. That's and everything I do, I do to aim towards that goal. The video you're watching now is aimed towards that goal. The all the uncovered secrets and gen, adventure generators, the Patreon, my YouTube videos, my articles, my podcasts, all the different things that I'm doing. I'm doing a lot of different things these days, right? Lots of different angles that I'm that I'm that I'm aiming towards. All of them are to help us all run better D and D games. That's that's what I want. And so the question that I had was like, let's pretend that. I dropped to 10% that, that they, they, the amount I was making from all of this dropped to 10% of what I'm doing now. Would I still do it? And I think the answer, I like to think the answer is yeah, because I did it when it was 10% before, right? Like Sly Flourish didn't make any money for like 10 years, right? Or very, very little money for like, you know, nine or 10 years. It wasn't until the Lazy Dungeon Master, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, where it actually started to make enough income that it mattered, Right. And I enjoyed it before. So I think, I think it is fine, right? And so I think the answer is, of course I would do this because I love D&D. Now, I have to keep it in mind because there are probably ways that I could take this whole little fun gig here and make it potentially more profitable, right? There are certain things I, I really don't ever want to do. I don't want to hire employees, right? I don't want to make it into a company. Matt Colville and what he's done is fantastic and I, he seems to be really enjoying it. I don't want to do that, right? I don't, I don't want his level of popularity and I don't want to run a company, right? I like doing my own thing. I don't want to get to the point where other people are writing things that I wish I was writing. I want to do the writing. I love writing. That, you know, writing this stuff is what I really enjoy. I love writing books. I love writing articles. I love you know, all that stuff and I want to do more of that. Now, like an angle is YouTube for me has been very popular and I've been doing a lot more YouTube videos. That is not my specialty. I don't mind doing the videos, but I don't think I enjoy them as much as I enjoy writing. So I got to be a little careful there because like, am I doing that just because it's popular and because it gets, you know, it, it draws, it draws people into the rest of the, the stuff, but am I liking it? I'll tell you like I, what I didn't like was editing video. I hate editing video. And luckily when you're shooting a five minute video, it's pretty easy to edit. And I've got tools like Descript that help me edit shows like this. And that helps a lot. So I think the answer is, of course, I would still do it. The question is like, what would the rest of us do if the popularity of D&D went to 10% of what it was? You know, I, I don't think it matters. Like one of the nice things about this, I, I, I've said this before, that 
One of the things I love about D&D is that it could survive a nuclear war. It's the only game I know that's like this, that can survive a nuclear war. We don't need digital tools. We have the books. And there's so many millions of copies of the books out there. It will survive. If there are five people around a campfire with a copy of the book, they're ready to play. In fact, you could probably play without the books because we know the rules enough, right? We could play something. It might not be D&D, but it might be Fate. Like I could play Fate off the top of my head because I know how that works. I don't need the book. So I think it's really fascinating about this game we've created that literally we could teach. If you had language, you could teach it to people, right? If you had language and some way of determining randomness, you know, you could, you could teach it to people. So, you know, I think it's like, it's pretty interesting when you look at like the tools that people in jail have used to be able to play D&D, right? And they, they're not allowed to have dice. So they have like spinner boards with a paperclip, right? And, and, you know, it works, right? So this is a really robust and you know resilient game and it can certainly if it can survive like being in jail like it can survive and if it can survive like a nuclear war it's certainly going to survive like if the commercial success goes down i think there'll be you know there's always going to be naysayers like oh D is dead right and it's like well the problem with that statement is they get to define what dead means and dead means it went into negative growth right for the first year um dead for them you know or, or some just want it to die so they just say it right like obviously they don't need any metric at all they just want it to be true no one is saying it now because it's like it's so spiky that i don't think you'd see anybody that's like oh dnd is dying i've heard weird things like where people will say oh you know dnd can't survive because the ranger isn't good or you know they th this particular mechanic makes the game you know makes the game not work and you're like obviously that's not true because people are playing it right and lots and lots of people are playing it so I'm not in the D&D business. I'm in the empire business. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of true. Of course, the idea of the Sly Flourish Empire is a joke because it's just me. It's me and my wife. Kadia134 says, really looking forward to the book. Will there be much content that isn't going to be early released to patrons? Probably not. I think patrons are going to get the thing that, yes, so that's not true. Are there any pages that will be in the book that aren't going to be given to patrons? The answer to that is probably no. I think everything, patrons are going to see everything that's that's in there. The difference is the book is going to be fully edited, fully laid out, and have lots of, lots of nice art. So you're going to see a cleaned up version of the things. And patrons won't have access to the edited, cleaned up versions. They'll have to buy the book. But if you're just interested in the ideas, the ideas are available kind of in both places. And I will not be taking them off of Patreon. So even though they'll be in a book form that you can buy, and it's going to be pretty reasonably priced. Like the PDF of it is, I think, I think we're aiming for 10 bucks, right? And the, so, you know, you'll have access to both. And if your idea is like, well, I don't need all the fancy art and all the editing. I just want the, the stuff. Well, then you can get on the Patreon. And patrons, of course, will be getting more stuff as a go. Like, I'm not, I'm not stopping that. So there will be new things that patrons will be getting, you know, once, once the book is out, patrons will be continuing to get new things every month. I doubt these will stop. Probably more generators will come out. I would be surprised if more Uncovered Secrets didn't come out. So there will be more stuff. And I'll probably do some more like short adventures and things like that. I've always got ideas for stuff like that. What else? Do I think D&D &D will split into online and non-online rules? I kind of hope not, but I don't, you know, I don't let D&D &D decide. I don't let wizards decide what they're going to do. So I, I don't think they're going to do a separate set of online rules because the online thing seems to work fine with the rules that exist now. I don't think the core books are likely to change. If they, if they did that, they'd have to go into a whole new thing. So I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. But I don't think they can't they can't damage what's happened in the past. So I think I think that works. The 4E haters that only talk about Pathfinder. Yeah. And then there's the 4E lovers who talk about their love of 4E. 4E, I'm I'm surprised about one of the things I'm surprised about. I'm surprised in a lot of ways about the popularity of 4E now, mostly because it wasn't popular all the time I was playing it. 4E did require a lot of digital tools, right? Like you really needed to have, first of all, you had to have a battle map and tokens and minis of some sort. It was built for the grid. And people argue, oh, you could run Theater of the Mind with 4E. I guess, but you know, you had to like describe what a slide four is like, <laughs> right? Like, or slide five. They had all these weird stuff, right? And everything was based on squares. Every, all, the, all the measurements are based on five foot squares. So it was, it was different, but also like you, it was really hard to make a fourth edition character without a builder, right? Without some kind of digital tool. And I think like, I think Matt Coville is using fantasy grounds. He's using 4E and fantasy grounds, which has all the tools built in. So we're still using digital tools for it, but 5E isn't that way. 5E we played for years with just the books and we can still play for just the books so with just the books. So that definitely, that definitely works. Let's see with online doing math and such, you could forgo all that text. Yeah. 
online builder was such a better deal than buying like Marshall Power 2. Yeah, right. It was so, there were so many character books. There was so much crunch for 4E trying to keep track of it. I mean, there were literally tens of thousands of powers, I think, and like thousands of feats. So yeah, you need to use a VTT. 4E was supposed to release with a VTT. It was, it was all kinds of, there was a big mess about the VTT. And I don't think they ever came out with one, did they? Was there ever a fourth edition virtual tabletop? I don't think so. Anyway, yeah, the answer is, would I still do this as a popularity in Falls? Yes. Yeah, and a lot of people say 5e is teach easier to teach in 4e. I think that's that's been true for me. So I don't have previews. I have a couple of previews of things, but mostly, like last week, I talked about two other Cobalt Press products. So they're, they're definitely getting Cobalt Press. My friend Wolf, Wolfgang Bauer at Cobalt Press is getting uh, a lot of my attention these days because he keeps making really cool stuff. So they have a Kickstarter for a book called Tome of Heroes. And Tome of Heroes, wow, $170,000 so far, 2,900 2900 backers. And Tome of Heroes is a, a whole big book of character options. I'm already backed, man. Oh, okay. Different tiers. One thing about Cobalt Press is, is, boy, their Kickstarters, you get a lot of really good stuff. So I backed at the hardcover support level. The one thing I'll note is, and it took me a while to figure this out, that Tome of Heroes is 50% new stuff and the 50% stuff that they're consolidating from other stuff that they have. So you have to decide if that's what you want. And other people I've heard say, like, that's great, but it's not a DM-focused thing. And that's true, too, right? As a DM, I'm probably going to get less value from this. But I like it. I love what Cobalt Press does. So I've definitely backed it. And they, they usually come out with really good stretch goals and really good rewards. So I think, I think there's going to be a lot of really, you know, I think there's going to be a really good, this is a really good thing. What is Beyond the Damage Dice? I don't know what that is. They got stretch goals in here that, Beyond the Damage Dice Part 1 and Part 2 by James Hake. Interesting. I wonder what that's about. So cool stuff. And, and, and yeah, anytime Cobalt Press sort of makes a, makes a big Kickstarter, it's kind of a big deal in this, in this thing. Do I think there, there, there's room for many live streamed campaigns or will only the top be commercially viable? I don't, yeah, it's a good question. I think, so I'll give my opinion as somebody who doesn't stream games. I have a feeling there's a huge asymptotic curve on the, on the popularity of streaming games. I think like if you took out the top three, the remainder are tiny, right? I think there's... I think there is a limited amount of room for, I think there's a limited amount of room for commercially viable live stream games. And I look at a lot of live stream games and see a lot of energy going into them, but probably isn't going to make anything. So if people are intending to do it as a business, I think they're kind of out of luck. I think if people are doing it for fun and they just enjoy doing it, they enjoy sharing their game, then who cares, right? I think that that's fine. So I think that, yeah, you know, I think there is a room for live stream games. Sure, there's room for an infinite number of live stream games. Is there a new, is there room for live stream games that have more than one viewer? That I don't know. And like, if you go at any given time to Twitch and look at D and D, uh, you see lots of people who are streaming games with a group where there are way more people in the group playing than there are watching the stream. And again, does it matter to them? I don't know if it matters to them, right? I mean, I, I presume that if they're doing it, they would hope to have lots of people. But if they think they're going to be the next critical role, I think, I think you know, that that's going to be hard. But some will, right? Some will be very popular and do lots of things. So there's certainly room for it. Is it commercially viable? Probably not. So, yeah. Name is Toby says, first time on the channel. Welcome. And thank you for, thank you for watching the YouTube videos. Hope you dig them. So that's Tome of, Tome of Heroes. We'll see what that's like. I had the opportunity this past week to meet with one of the, one of the owners of a company that developed a product called Vorpal Board. And uh, Vorpal Board is a virtual tabletop with a very specialized, a very specialized niche. Vorpal Board intends to make it easy for you to play remote games with physical tabletop stuff. And it's a really, I had heard about them before. They, they reached out to me. They actually reached out to me through my friend, Chris Sims, who are friends with the owners of this and has played with, with, with Vorpal Board. So it is a commercial tool. I think it costs five, if you subscribe, it's five bucks a month. It's completely web-based. You don't need any local client. The only client you need is you need a client on your phone, whatever, whether you have an Android phone or an iPhone, you need a, you, you have to connect your phone up to your account. And there's a reason why. And that gets to why this thing is special. So the idea behind Vor Vorpal Board is that the, the game master, and I'm going to focus it, it's, it's built for both board games and for role-playing games, but I'm going to talk about the role-playing game aspect. Shocker. And on the role-playing game side, the DM is intended to be broadcasting a live display of a physical setup. So you can see where like with Dwarven Forge, this could be a real, a real big thing. I think I've, I think I, 
I already have a, let's see, I put up a video here of, this is from the Vorpal Board website, obviously no audio, I turn that audio off. And it shows how they have a separate camera. So Thad, Thad, who's in the middle there, was the fellow that I met with this past week, I think on Friday. And he showed it to me. We spent a good hour together, him showing all the different capabilities. And then I probably spent another hour playing with it myself. So the reason why this came up and, and came to my attention is that, and you can see how you can, that, that a user, one of the, the, the players can move their cursor around and see details of what's going on a map. That's, there's kind of like two big things that you can do here. One is that the player can point on the map with a shared pointer about where they want to be. And then here's like a side view, right? a side view of the same thing. And the DM can see where the player is pointing, but then the player can also zoom in on various aspects. So if you have kind of a zoomed out board, they can zoom in and kind of take a look at, at some of it and see some of the detail. The other thing that it does is because it's using, it's using your phone's camera and it really take, it knows to take a very high res version of the phone's camera at a higher resolution than like the thumbnails of players, right? And there's a big advantage in that because when you have a setup like a big Dwarven Forge arrangement, you definitely wanna have a high res version. So I was trying to do like a, a bastardized version of this with Discord. And the way I did it with Discord, I, I, so I had a Dwarven Forge setup that I had, that I had put together. And I, was, I, I created a second Discord account and had my phone logged into that account and then broadcast from that. And the problem is that Discord is treating every camera as though it's a person and the resolution is low. It doesn't send a high res version. The neat thing about, about Vorpal Board is that it's, it, it, it uses a low frame rate on a high res image for the camera because it knows that like it doesn't that you want a higher frame rate when you're looking at people's faces you want a lower frame rate when you're looking at a board and it works really well so yeah bad fish having the camera at an angle yeah when i was talking to thad about it he said that he actually prefers the three-quarter view that you know he prefers he prefers the, th the three-quarter view from from the camera's angle rather than a top view and I could see I could see the advantages of both. The company also sells a as as it's either part of their package. Let's see if they've got the store shop. So they have the RPG package for forty five bucks, which I think comes with like three free months. And it has a great big arm, right? It's got a it's, here's the Vorpal arm, right? A great big like kind of like the arm I'm using right now for my microphone. They have one of these that mounts onto it that's specifically designed to hold your camera. It's got a 360 rotating thing and you can keep it mounted on your table and move it wherever you need it. Thad suggested that you keep the arm in a, sing, a stable place and then you move the, you know, you move the rooms around to kind of highlight the room and that that can act sort of as a, as a fog of war. So, so that was pretty neat. It is a, so, so difficulty wise, like as far as, you know, where, where it sits among VTTs, it doesn't do any rules for you, right? So it's not, it doesn't have any integration of a rule set. It's, it's really focused on video and the layout. It does have a dice roller built into it. If you want to roll dice, I can keep hitting play so you can see what they're, what they're up to. It has a dice roller built into it to help you roll dice. And it has uh, a way to switch scenes. So you can kind of move your assets around on the page and then, and then flip with a hotkey switch between, switch between scenes. Uh, Rugroth says, external springs are the enemy of sound energy. That's why I got a new boom arm to get rid of my external springs. And they have external springs in that one, but that one doesn't have a microphone on it. So you don't have to worry about the springs causing a lot of feedback in mics that it's not so bad. So yeah, if that was a microphone boom arm, I would agree with you. Get rid of the springs. I had an old one that had springs and... I'm sure anybody that listened to my show, what an occasion hear those springs go pong. So really neat system. Uh, so difficulty wise, I will say it's a little bit more difficult to use than like Albert Rodeo because you, uh, the way you line up the scenes and because you have to kind of connect your phone up and stuff like that. But it's got a lot of Albert Rodeo levels of sensibility. For example, you can just pass the link to your players and your players can connect without any account at all, which is really nice. I think Thad said that it probably doesn't work particularly well when you're when a player is on a mobile device. I, they're probably okay on a tablet, but on a it's it's going to be really hard to see anything and hard to kind of scroll around and do anything if you're using like a, a mobile phone and connecting through a mobile phone. So in that case, it's probably not a little bit as quite as flexible as Albert Rodeo, but it does a different thing, right? This this tool is very specifically designed to help you broadcast a physical tabletop. So if you've got a lot of miniatures, you've got physical maps at the table, and that's what you want to try to show. Then that is then that is really what it is for. It is really designed. It kind of hits this market of like people like me, where I've got a lot of Dwarven Forge and I want to show cool Dwarven Forge setups. 
not so much for people who are going to use virtual maps. And that's that's an interesting question specifically for like people like me where, boy, I find it so much easier now to use virtual maps than I do to, to set up physical ones. And what does that mean? Like if I was playing online only, I probably wouldn't buy a lot of Dwarven Forge. <laughs> Right, and I've already bought the Dwarven Forge, and I, I I plan to get back to the table again. We were there for two days. Two, we had two sessions back at the table, and then COVID hit again. So yeah. Anyway, I really liked Vorpal Board. I I suggest checking it out if you use if you a if you want to broadcast a physical board game with your players. It is built for that. If you want to broadcast a really cool tabletop arrangement, it is really good for that. If you do so regularly, it's really good for that. You know, I would say it's definitely a niche. If you're just doing traditional online D&D, you can probably still get away with just Discord and Albert Rodeo, both of which are free. But yeah, if you're, I think if I, if I, and probably I will, if, as I regularly broadcast physical tabletop displays like Dwarven Forge, I will definitely, I will definitely use, I think I, you know, this one is built exactly for that. So yeah, so Thad was really great spending an hour with me talking, talking me through it. And it was really fun to play with it afterwards. I did not get frustrated. I did not get frustrated by it, which I typically do with a lot of VTTs. There's not a lot of super complicated stuff in a million features like your, your foundry or your roll 20 or your fantasy grounds. It's really designed just like it does one thing, which is display tabletop displays to your players. And it focuses on that cost is $5 a month. I think I think it's $60 for a year subscription. So yeah. Did you talk about board gaming with this? How would Gloomhaven work? It is built around ideas like Gloomhaven. There, you can actually go see all of their videos and view them and see how they do it for things like Gloomhaven. They actually have ways for you to like broadcast the cards and stuff like that. I haven't looked into it, so I don't know how hard that is. But it was built around those two use cases. Role-playing games with physical props on the table and for tabletop gaming with actual physical tabletop games. So yeah, good stuff. But yeah, you can see how it works and you can kind of see the videos, you know, I'm showing a video inside of a video, but you can see that like it's pretty clear what's going on here and it's pretty cool to see. So yeah, for those of us who have a, a, a significant investment in physical tabletop stuff, it is a good solution to be able to still do that and play remotely. What else? Let's go back here. Talk about Vorpal Board. Let's see. I was wondering, why do you think it is that despite the fact that there are a ton of D&D streams out there, only very few are actually successful in terms of viewership? It is something that if you do, I think it's, you know, I mean, I, why do I, what do I know, right? This is not a field of my expertise. So, so you'll have to take it with a grain of salt. But I think it's a matter of time, right? Even, even, I mean, it's amazing to me that people have the time to watch Critical Role and it's the most popular one, right? But the amount of time that, that people are broadcasting there's only so much time that people can be watching it. And there's so much, you know, there's so much supply, right? If we think about it from an, from an economy standpoint of supply and demand, you know, the demand signal is limited by the p amount of time that people can watch it, right? The, like the maximum amount of online games a human being can watch is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? And even then they're not, you know, they're certainly not watching that amount. So what is... You know, imagine somebody whose whole hobby was kind of watching this. They could probably squeeze in at the most four hours a day, right? Like four, imagine four hours a day, eight hours a day on the weekends, right? So that's like 20 hours plus 16, 36 hours. So, you know, imagine, imagine the most you could expect anybody to watch is 36 hours, right? And then what is that? Five times four and then five and nine. So that's nine games that they could watch, nine different games a week that they could watch, which would be a lot. But there's a lot more than nine games streaming, right? There's many more than nine games streaming. So, you know, I, I think like no one asked my opinion and I have no idea if this would work and I've given terrible business advice in the past. So keep that, I'll keep that on mind. But like, if I were going to do a streaming game, I would want to say, how is my streaming game different than everybody else's streaming game? What is mine offering that none of the others offer? Why and why would people want that, right? And and the example is when when my friend Enrique and I did our Dragon of Ice Spire Peak one on one game, we had three angles that we were that we were taking. There was three reasons why that show was unique among games. First of all, it's the only time I've ever streamed a game, right? So people have said, I want to see Sly Flourish stream a game. He's doing lazy DM stuff. I want to see what that's like. And I don't think I actually even answered that question because I never did like a prep show and then the game, which I think is be what pe what people would want. So, you know, so one angle could have been, hey, here's a streaming game where Sly Flourish preps his game online so everybody can see how he preps. And then here's one where he runs it and you can see how he runs it. 
given the prep, right? And that unique angle is the lazy DM approach, both in how I prep and in how I run it in practice. But the second angle was it was a one-on-one game. And we wanted to show what a one-on-one D&D game was like, right? Between two friends. And that is different than a lot of them. Most of them are, are full groups. I don't think there's a lot of one-on-one streaming games. I don't really know. But I don't, I don't. I know they're not typical. So that showed that. And then third was, it was running Dragon of Icebear Peak, one of the most popular adventures for the fifth edition of D&D. It certainly gets a lot of hits because of that. So it was a way to show what that particular adventure is like in, in running it. So if you think about it, like that streaming game had a lot of unique angles that it took, which made it pretty popular, right? I mean, you know, we're not getting rich off of it. We're not making any money at all off of it. But it certainly had the advantage of having a reason why, you know, a reason why we showed that. So, yeah. So I think that there is a supply and demand curve. And if I were going to do streaming games, and I'm not, I don't plan on doing streaming games regularly because it's not my niche, right? It's not the thing. I don't know that that helps that much. And I, you know, there's so many others out there that why, why, why would mine matter? Right. And, but if I were going to, I would want to say, what about mine makes it unique among games, right? A unique and it, not just because it's me, right? Cause God knows I don't really want to have it driven. Like, oh, we just want to see Mike's game. No. I mean, what would I bring to it where no, somebody who didn't know me at all would say, this is a different kind of streaming game than everybody else. And that's why I want to watch it. And maybe that angle is enough to get people to watch it. And maybe it's not. But, you know, I, I, I think that there's just so many games online that, you know, it's hard to figure out what exactly that angle is. So I think that that's why, I think that that's probably why, you know, it's harder to get popularity for a lot of different games, you know, and I think it's because of supply and demand, you know, the, the, the demand signals attention, right? And I think a lot of people have said this now for a long time, that the, the, the supply is no longer, the, the supply and demand is not about money and physical products, Right. The, 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 the demand is for attention, right? How do I get eyeballs on something? And you, every one of the, the whole internet is built around this. Like, how do I get somebody to watch my YouTube video? I don't need to buy anything. I just wanted to watch my YouTube video. What am I doing there? And, and like one way to fix the supply and demand is short videos, right? I do three minute, four minute videos. And I do that because like I can f- slide those in, right? You're not going to watch an hour long video. Maybe you're watching an hour long video right now. And thank you very much for watching the hour long video. And I still do them, but I can tell you they get far fewer, they get far fewer views than a three minute video that I do. And it's because of the, you know, I'm asking for less. It's the cost is less, right? The cost in this case is minutes and the cost is less. So, you know, I think like that's, that's another, another angle for an online and they did it like wizards had for a while, a really good approach. And I don't know what the hell happened to it, but they used to do these like eight hour, one hour episode, mini, mini series of, of D and D and they were great, right? They did the, they did one that was based on storm King's thunder. They did another one based on tomb of annihilation. And I think I think it would be really neat if Wizards did high production, short episodes. And one that my wife and I are really enjoying is Fantasy High, right? A Dimension 20 does a series called Fantasy High. And we know it's a limited series, limited run. They're, they're like an hour, I think they're one or two hour long videos, relatively short compared to the four hour streaming ones. And you watch them and you're done, right? And we, we like it because we know we can keep up. We know that it's already finished. We know we're not behind. The problem with Critical Role is like, I got behind immediately, right? Immediately they were making more content than I was than I was watching and I could not keep up. And you get kind of broken down. You're like, I know I'm never gonna see the end of this, right? So yeah, Dimension 20 is really good. And yeah, Dimension 20 and Fantasy High, I think really have a good angle. And I would see a yeah, Force Gray, right? Force Gray was a really cool, you know, Force Gray was a really cool short eight hour, I think it was eight one hour episodes, right? And that's what I would wanna see. And that's what like Enrique and I did that, right? So Enrique and I shot them as individual episodes. It's not like we played one big ass long game and then bro- broken up the pieces, but that would certainly be a, w- be a way to do it. Instead, what we did is we, we knew it was one-on-one. So that means that the episodes were like an hour and a half. They were like 90 minutes. And we still got through the whole thing in like 10 episodes, right? So that means it's a fixed run thing. You know, you can watch it. You know, you're going to see the beginning, middle and end and it works out. That was my first streaming game. So there's all kinds of like, I think one of the episodes, my mic is totally blooming hot. And, and really not great, right? So, yeah, so so I don't know. Anyway, that's thought about streaming games. Frostmaiden Grievances. I don't know if I want to talk too much about this. We'll see. On the this last episode of Behind the DM Screen, which we streamed last Thursday, I thought it would be funny to write down 
my 15 grievances with Frostmaiden. And, but I also included my Frostmaiden accolades. And I can talk about them here, but it, it actually didn't go as well as I thought. And I think part of it was like, I felt like I kind of chapped Sam's ass when I was going over these things, but mostly because he and I have had the same arguments. He's probably getting tired of the same arguments. And the reality is like, he didn't, I understand his point of view and I still don't think I'm wrong. Right. And, and, and this is, this could be hubris on my part. So I'll, for those of you who do not want to be spoiled for Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, you may want to, you may want to skip, you may want to skip forward and uh, because I'm going to talk about the grievances. Wait a minute. Where are they? How come? There they go. I, I, weird. I linked to something else. So I had, I had like 15 grievances that I wrote the ones that were checked were the ones that uh, Sam agreed with. And I feel like the, the, so the, the, the argument is, is this just a matter of opinion, right? Is this just the, the adventure isn't right for Mike? Or are these really flaws in the design of Rhyme of the Frostmaiden? And I feel like they're really design flaws. I don't feel, and it, but it, I guess it doesn't, the hard part is like, I don't know that it matters. It's already out. They're not fixing it. So what? And we'll see what, which light is. And I can offer my feedback and say like, hey, I didn't like how this played out. And I guess the, you know, the, the thing is like, am I being arrogant in saying these are really matters of opinion? I know Sam likes it and that's great. Like, I'm not saying he shouldn't like it, right? He should like it. But like, I liked Tomb of Annihilation, but I know it's got flaws and they are real flaws. They are not, they are not things that I think are, are just Mike Shea's opinion. I think that they are actually not, you know, there are things that are clearly wrong with that adventure. They're fixable. I feel like I'm doing way more fixing for room for Rhyme of the Frostmaiden than I did for Tomb of Annihilation or Curse of Strahd or a lot of the adventures, even like most of them, right? I think that, I think it's bottom list. So I'll, I'll whip through my, my 10, my, my, or my 15 grievances, right? Eight out of the 10 starting quests can wipe out first level characters and they don't tell you which ones and they offer no warning to the fact. And the truth is they offer, they offer the, they offer the warnings in chapter two. So why do they offer it in chapter two, but not chapter one? I don't know. Most of chapters of two locations have no connection, no purpose, and no useful reward. The book offers no guidance for tying these things to any sort of central plot. Sam believes that both of these things are features, not bugs. Maybe, but how hard is it to say, hey, the difficulty of these encounters may vary. They, you know, I was talking about it for Scarlet Citadel. Scarlet Citadel by Cobalt Press says, hey, this is a really hard adventure and they might get wiped out at first level if they don't run. Just one or two sentences could fix all these things. And I think Sam agrees, but he doesn't see these as flaws on their own. Like they should have changed them. And I'm saying like, maybe they don't change them, but how hard is it to say like, hey, you know, these two adventures are really built for first level characters and they can survive. These other ones are really built for second to fourth level adventures. And by the way, if they don't run it, if they don't, if it turns into combat, it could be lethal. There's two winter wolves in one fight for crying out loud. Chapter one is three times bigger than it should be given its level range. It's a first to seventh level chapter packed into one to four levels. It should have been six quests instead of 13 plus. I really think they over-engineered. He says, no, it gives you lots of options. Think of it like a source book. There's lots of places to go. That's true. But like, I know I'm not going to use two thirds of them, right? I shouldn't use two thirds of them. And instead I got confused and I ran it for two different groups and I knew what the problem was and I still got confused. And I consider myself a pretty experienced DM, right? I've run every other hardcover adventure. So I don't think I'm a complete noob when it comes to running adventures like this. And I had a really hard time. How, how else does everyone do it? No guidance on when you should face Sephic Caltro. This one chaps my ass because I get arguments from two different kinds of people saying two different things. Some group says, of course, you're not supposed to face a challenge, challenge rating three guy that does 26 damage a turn at first level. He's meant to be faced later, at which my response is, why doesn't it say that? Why doesn't it say we don't expect that you'll face uh, that the character should not face Sephic Caltro at first level. It's not expected that they'll face Sephic Caltro at first level. They instead should probably be second and fourth level, right? Sam is Sam, Sam Dillon. DM Sam on DM Sam on the, on the deep dive. So is he deadly to first level characters, right? And it's like, he is, but again, just maybe you want to have a little warning, right? Town speakers are murdering their own citizens and the, and the players, why would the players want to help them? Right. And he says, again, my players didn't mind that this was the case. I didn't create the cult of oral to, to, to offset the town speakers. And mine is like, I just knew both of my groups already were cynical of the town speakers. Even when I offset the sacrifices, the fact that the towns are sacrificing people, turn them off and helping the people at 10 towns, period. Uh, why are there incest couples in Dugan's Hall? Both of us agreed that that was really dumb. The trials in Grimskullstock, both of us agreed with that one. The timing of the Shardle and Dragon's attack and how quickly the characters can intercede doesn't work. He disagreed. and he, But he talked about how he changed it because he didn't want to have all of 10 towns potentially wiped out. 
right? Shroud on Dragon's whole flight plan means you're likely to lose half of 10 towns. I didn't like how that worked out. It offers no real options to it. Note of motivation to go to Yethrin once you solve the Endless Night. Let's follow that evil woman into the undead dog sled. She seems nice, right? And, and yeah, it's like, why go to Yethrin? And you have to build a whole separate plot about why go to Yethrin and how Yethrin is connected to the Endless Night. You can solve the Endless Night by killing a rock. And but apparently that's enough to stop a god. He agreed that that was a problem. Oral's a big chump. The Frostmaiden is not some demon, prince, vampire, lich, beholder, crime lord, or archdevil. She's a god and a cold-hearted one at that. Uh-huh. Which is more dangerous at eighth level? So Oral or Sarak, right? Twice. And really, this is one big thing, which is more than once in the adventure, it takes threats and scales them to the character's level. The world is conforming itself to the character's level. And the way to argue that is Oral is a god walking around on Toral, walking around in Icewind Dale, and they scale her so that she can be defeated when you have 8th, ninth, or 10th level characters. Why, why isn't she 4th or 5th level, right? If, how come she is the perfect level to face the characters? Why isn't she 26th level like a Sarak was? Right? Like, it doesn't make any sense. If you're going to throw a god in there, you should do it. I think it should be different. I didn't like that. Players have no idea what to do when they show up at Sunblight Fortress. They see the dragon fly away. Do they go in? In Sam's case, he described how they thought they'd be able to stop the dragon with a control mechanism inside. They made that hypothesis. And he was like, oh my God, what if it turns out they try to go in to find a way to stop it? And then they changed their mind and went back and saved it. But if they had gone in with the hypothesis that they could stop it inside the sun, inside Scarlet Citadel, that's a Sunblight, Sunblight Fortress, then all of 10 towns would have been destroyed and then nothing they could have done about it, right? Hey, more trials in Yethrin. Uh, he said, no, they're not trials. They're totally different. That's totally fine. I don't know. I haven't actually read them that much. Dragon is a big wimp too. Has 147 hit points. He has the size of a house, right? Again, the world is conforming to the characters. Why is that? Avalanche mechanics, you're either going to get totally crushed and die or you're going to uh, totally survive. Why does it, then why do the mechanics, the, the mechanics are such that like, in, you know, you're either caught in it or you're not. And if you are, you're pretty screwed. He didn't agree with that one. So then I have things that I like about Frostmaiden. 15, I wanted to say, like, all of the things that I didn't like, what are things that I did like? I think Cold Light Walkers are really cool, and we're going to talk about those in just a few minutes. The Null Vampires, Null Vampires are really cool. You know, the Tech Lili is really cool. Yethrin is the full, first full taste of the Netherees. That's really cool. Good primer on all of 10 towns. Yeah, like, it, as a source book, it's not so bad. I think they could have collapsed a lot of the quests down into a couple of paragraphs to say these are things going on in this town that the characters might get involved in but you don't have to make a whole separate quest with a map and everything else because it's like well, I'm, it's so much material i'm not going to use the idea of Durgar shardalon drag war machine is cool yeah god walking on Faerun is cool except when it's a wimp moose jaws is awesome i like moose jaws big whale submarine is cool grim, grim skull is pretty cool except for the trials and nonsense but the idea of it artwork is awesome but it's always awesome in these books foaming mugs is a great starter quest the idea of hunting and serial killer in 10 towns is fun the it ascended is cool but only if you can tie it to the characters as sort of an offhanded compliment it has a lot of room to add in your own stories and plot lines it does and I've, I've had a lot of fun with that it has lots of room for character backgrounds and connections yep that's kind of the other one right oh yeah this is weird why, why i have that so those are the reasons that those are things that i like about it so i've discussed it with sam sam is very you know the reason why i'm discussing it, sam is very smart he's looked at all of these adventures he, he's done it and he likes it right and what i found particularly interesting is when you have two people who are very experienced with D&D, who have run hundreds and hundreds of games and know this stuff inside and out and yet have such a diverging opinion about it. And I think the reality is he likes the theme of Rime of the Frost Maiden and I don't. And I think that that's where we have a real separation. If I loved this adventure, if I loved the theme of the adventure, I think I'd, I'd have less problem with it because I could make a list of grievances like this for Tomb of, Tomb of Annihilation and it definitely has problems. I could make a list of grievances about Tomb of Annihilation that's similar to this, but I would be on the side of, yeah, but it's still good. I think the difference is Sam believes a lot of these things are features, not bugs. I think they are bugs. And I think if I was to argue about Tomb of Annihilation, I would still say they're bugs, right? I would still say they are design problems. They could, And he agrees with the whole principle, right? And all of my, many of my things here are basically, they're not telling us how to do it, right? Tell us, you know, help, as I say, help a dude out. I paid you 50 bucks, help a dude out. Right. And I think that if it had just said, and it does in some places, right? The beginning of chapter two, it says some of these encounters are going to be deadly if you're too low level. That's all I'm saying, right? Like say that for the quests, maybe a little bit more to say like, by the way, these two quests work really well for first level. These other eight are really designed for second level and above. Say things like, hey, you're hunting for Sefa Caltro, the expectation is that they won't be facing him until they're second level or above, Right that it shouldn't, they shouldn't, if they're facing him at first level, they're likely to get killed. A lot of other books do it. It's one sentence. It doesn't take a long time. 
So yeah, those are my grievances. I don't know how well that show came out because I think it was just the two of us bickering for an hour. But yeah. Oh, I lost my, I lost all my stuff. Chapter one should have had two tiers for quests, first level or not. Yeah, I agree, right? I think they could have said like, these are our first level. And it kind of does. If you say, hey, run, and, and this is what I do, right? Like just run the Bryn Shander quest, run Foaming Mugs. Foaming Mugs is a good first level quest. Just run that, right? Then, then you're better off. So one of the things that we argued about, and it, or we didn't argue, we're both on the same side on this one, was the flow chart in, in, in Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. I'm gonna pull it up here because I don't wanna get it wrong. Adventure flow chart, right? Here's the adventure flow chart. Chapter one, 10 towns. Chapter two, Icewind Dale. Chapter three, Sunblight. Chapter four, Destruction's Light. Chapter five, Oral's Abode. Chapter six, it's a list of the chapters of the book. The, the table of contents has the, these chapters, right? One, two, three, four, five. I don't need a flow chart. Whoops. I don't need a flow chart to, to organize the chapters of the book, right? A flow chart is a flow chart. Show me options. How are all those, you know, and what they're saying is like, I don't know, we don't know. You know, we don't know which quests you're gonna do in 10 towns or how you're gonna lay them out. There's no flow chart here. Like, oh my God, right? And even better, it's still wrong. And it's wrong because the Sunblight chat, first of all, Destruction's Light, likely happens before Sunblight. And both Destruction's Light and Sunblight can happen during chapter two. So it's not even, even though it's just a list of chapters, it's still wrong, right? It still doesn't d display how the flow, how the flow of the campaign plays out because it's, these two chapters are flipped and they're in here. So that just cracks me up. It, it reminds me of like encounter building. Like, hey, we're gonna make you do a whole lot of math and it's still not gonna work, right? So do I have a printed Watsy book that I recommend for new players and new DMs? Yes, pick up the D&D Essentials Kit. Read my guide on it because there's still some things that can, they, they, it's still not perfect. But the D&D Essentials Kit, I think is the best way. The starter set in the Essentials Kit, I'd probably go with the Essentials Kit first. I think it's better. But the D&D Essentials Kit is a fantastic way to do it. Do you skip chapter four if your characters are fifth or seventh? I don't know. I don't know how to do it, right? That's the thing. Like the levels are also all over the place. Rhyme of the Frostmaiden feels like it was a rush job. I'll tell you it was a rush job was, was uh, Descent and Avernus. That was a rush job. I don't know about Frostmaiden. I don't know how it worked. I know it had a million authors and I bet trying to combine all the material from a million authors is probably tough. And if they had to re-edit it afterwards, that could be tough. But I don't know. I don't know what happened. And I don't blame authors. Like one thing, you know, I don't blame the authors of these individual pieces because somebody put it together, right? And and it's put together as kind of, I don't think the process worked. It's not about the authors or their or their talent or their capabilities. It's about the process. The art's really good. Anyway, so my friend wrote about, wrote about flowcharts and he kind of laughs about, you know, so like the first time I remember when it happened, the first time they put a flowchart in, like this is the flowchart to, this is the flowchart from Storm King's Thunder. And it's a real flowchart. It's got real things going on in here, right? It shows you like, hey, here, you know, two different ways that, that you get in. Here's what, you know, the next chapter that you get here, are these pieces, you know, it's a real flowchart. And people liked it and said, this is really helpful. And this is the only one that I think they've done that has been helpful. Every other flowchart they put in their adventures, a lot of times they're just a straight line. And it's like, you know, a line comes in, a bunch of things happen here and a line goes up. And again, 13 quests are in chapter one, 13 quests for three levels of play. No description about how they're supposed to operate. Which ones should I expose? How many should I expose? How do I expose them? Nothing about like how to put these quests other than here's a bunch of rumors they could hear. Should I give them all of them? Should I only give them two? How many rumors do I give, right? I don't know. I've done it for two different groups and I still don't know how to do it, right? So, yeah. Anyway, Alpha Stream's got a, Teos has got a, a really good article that talks in detail about flowcharts and where they work and where they don't and, and how they come up. I'm going to link to the notes uh, below. As a flowchart, an actual branch and choice, rethinking flowcharts, uh, flowcharts that truly branch out. You know, he's got descriptions of this, you know, lots of, lots of interesting stuff. So a really good article that dives deep into this problem of how do flowcharts, of how do flowcharts work. So I would suggest, uh, I would suggest taking a look at that. Also the Sunblight, et cetera, don't you have to run some of the Dugar quest in chapter one? Yes, you do. Jim, Jim, Jeremy brings up a point, which is you, there are a couple of quests inside chapter one. If you don't run them, they'll have no idea that 
they should go to Sunblight Fortress at all and what the threat actually is. It's, you know, I think Sam's argument is it's a sandbox. They, they, what they've developed as a sandbox. Of course, it doesn't describe itself as such. And it doesn't say, like Sam is saying, like, you know, when you have all these places in chapter two, you need to connect them. It doesn't tell me I need to connect them. It just says, here's a bunch of places. So again, help me out. Describe how sandboxes work. They have an opportunity here, right? And I know a lot of brand new DMs are starting with Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. I know this is true. I see it on Reddit all the time. Lots of people who are starting with Rhyme of the Frostmaiden because it's a big deal because the marketing team kicked ass, right? And they're not helping you. So I don't know, boy, deep end of the pool. It's not even just the deep end of the pool. Again, I've been playing D&D for 30 years and maybe it's maybe that's getting in the way. I don't know. Maybe my experiences actually make it harder for me than the new DMs who are having an easier time. That's possible. I don't think so. Are we too dependent? This is actually, I think, yeah, this will be kind of our last conversation for this show. When it comes to, this is really was intended when I was talking about the Tome of Heroes for Cobalt Press, right? Cobalt Press is gonna put out a big book of new character options and my, I, I think it's cool. I'm backing it, right? And and I think it's great. But because it's not in D&D Beyond, it's going to limit its ability. That D&D Beyond, Wizards has created a monopoly with D&D Beyond. And I don't know why it exists. I have a hypothesis, though. Can you play? It's not a true monopoly because... Can we play D&D without D&D Beyond? Yes, absolutely. It's sort of like when there was a while where people were like, Apple is a monopoly with the iPhone. And you're like, what? A, a monopoly on good design, right? A monopoly on devices people like to use? Like, that's not a monopoly. Like, anybody can make one, right? Nothing's in the way. And that same thing. Like, D&D Beyond's monopoly really is that it's a really good tool, right? That it, 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 they've, they've done an outstanding job. But there's not a single piece of exclusive content in there. All of that content is available, both in books outside. It's available in multiple virtual tabletops, right? You can get it in. So I think there's a way to connect. Well, yeah, so Foundry doesn't have it, but both Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds, I think, have it, right? They have all that material. And here's the really weird bit. Fantasy Grounds and Roll20 have the third-party material too. Now, I think it's pretty sh safe to say that it isn't D&D Beyond's choice not to have third-party stuff. There's some kind of agreement they made with Wizards of the Coast that is limiting their ability to add third-party stuff. And, and that came because a while back, they tried to make a, I think it was for like, it was a, for, for a, a MOBA, right? There was a, there was a multi-online battle arena game and they tried to make a fifth edition style thing that was part of D&D Beyond. And it was released as a PDF on D&D Beyond for a short period of time and then disappeared. And they said, we're afraid that we have to take it down. And, and the general thought was Watsy made them take it down because obviously they wouldn't want to. They put a lot of money behind it. So it seems like whatever agreement Wizards of the Coast has, a league had a marketing deal. Yeah, it was League of Legends. Yeah, I think you're right. League of Legends had a marketing deal and they worked it out. And they tried to publish it and they didn't. So there's some third-party stuff, very, very little third-party stuff on D&D Beyond. And I, I don't know if they have to get an agreement from Wizards of the Coast to put it up there or not. It's not really clear. The, I think the best argument... So then my question was, well, what makes them different? What makes them different than Roll20? Why is it Roll20 doesn't have to ask for permission to put third-party stuff up, but D&D Beyond does? And I think the 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 best argument I have heard between the two of them is that it has the word D&D in the title, right? Because it's called D&D Beyond and not like Beyond 20, although there's another Beyond 20, right? But not RPG Beyond or something, you know, innocuous like a D20 Beyond. Because it's called D&D Beyond and because they've signed up with a license agreement for the phrase D&D, that is why they are limited in what the, that 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 inhibits them from publishing third party stuff including probably other rpgs but certainly other dnd stuff that limits them be, you know beyond what roll 20 is limited on so roll 20 can have tasha's it does have tasha's there was a period of time i think it was really weird where i thought that d that, that roll 20 and fantasy grounds both said the, the, both Roll20 and Fantasy Ground said, we're going to have Tasha's in our system. And Dean and Dina Beyond did not say that. And it was like, wait a minute. Is Wizards withholding Tasha's from Dean to Beyond? What's going on there? 
it was really weird. It was a weird time. And then they suddenly say, yeah, we're going to do it. So I wondered if like Wizards was going to hold it back, right? The truth is it feels like Wizards of the Coast has its hand around the throat of D&D Beyond and no one else. And D&D Beyond is in a really rough position. So what would happen to D&D? We were talking about disaster scenarios earlier in the show, right? Like what would happen if D&D re- was reduced to 10% of its popularity? One of the things that could potentially cause something like that to happen is if there's a rift between D&D Beyond and Wizards of the Coast, you know, that would be a problem, right? There would be a breakdown uh, between the two. And it would mean a lot of people, I bet you the popularity of D&D would generally go down if either D&D Beyond stopped getting new stuff from Wizards of the Coast or Wizards of the Coast stopped supporting it. Both groups would be hurt by it significantly, I think. And the whole industry, I think, would be hurt as a repercussion to that. It's not a doomsday scenario. It's not like it's the end of D&D. Again, there is no end of D&D. But, you know, I think there's there's weird politics going on with D&D Beyond. And I wonder, like, as as fandom, as fandom bought D&D Beyond, has that changed things? I don't know. Really interesting, right? Really interesting on, on, on what's going on there. I have no idea what the real story is. I'm just looking at this from an outside perspective, and I think it's very interesting. And we'll see. We'll we'll see what happens. That is it for the show today. I want to thank all of you who are listening on the podcast and watching on YouTube. I want to thank you for hanging out with me for this hour. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out in four ways. One, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Two, you can subscribe to me on YouTube. Three, you can support me directly on Patreon by going to the, the Patreon, the Sly Flourish Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sly Flourish. Or four, you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and the Lazy DMs Workbook. Thank you very much and have a great day.